Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Rick Morton. All right, welcome again to the Think Orphan podcast. I'm Rick Morton, uh, co-host with along with Phil Dark. Phil, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Doing really well. Yeah, you know, lot lots going on. Lots of really good stuff. I'm going to be uh, kind of rolling it out to uh, to you folks out there as it as it's happening. Um, you know, none of it's ready to share with you yet, but I've got some exciting things coming down the pike that I'm really excited about. So, um, yeah, I mean, how about yourself? You know, I know you you wanted to talk a little bit about some current events going on, like we did a couple episodes ago, and we want to do a little bit more of that. But uh, what, what what do you got for us to talk about today? Yeah, man, actually come, uh, I think, with a little bit of what I would say is kind of a heavy heart and some heavy thoughts today. Um, so I know folks may be listening at this at, at different times, and, and this may not resonate even with uh, with some of our global audience, but I think it'll it'll you know, it'll make sense. Um, just, uh, we're recording in, uh, kind of the aftermath of the article that was just in the Houston Chronicle about, um, the, the cases of, uh, unreported and undealt with, um, abuse, sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist convention and in Southern Baptist churches. And just, it's really close to home as somebody who's been a part of SBC churches and taught in SBC institutions and really had a lot of my life wrapped up in that, uh, in that denomination. And, you know, those are, those are my people. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, I don't want to definitely don't want to break down all the commentary that's gone on in, in various places. Um, but, but Phil, I think that the thing that struck me the most today um, is being someone who is ministering to and, and fighting for vulnerable children. Um, one of the things that I'm just incredibly aware of is that we cannot, um, we can't fight that fight on one front and ignore it on another. Right. Um, and, and it's just, it's incumbent upon us, um, with the, you know, scandals we've seen over the years in, in the Roman Catholic church and the things that we've seen, um, you know, recently that have come out in Southern Baptist life that we have to deal swiftly, um, and, and, and directly, uh, with abuse in the church. Um, we have to be people that take this seriously. We can't sweep it under the rug and, and we can't allow our churches to be places that protect abusers. Um, and, and that is that we would say that is wholeheartedly true, uh, of the children that we minister to in, uh, across the world and in our own country, um, but um, but we've not kept our own house clean in many instances. And so just would really speak a word out there to friends to say, let's be as diligent in um, in our, our care for the way that we deal with these things in our own house. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, we talk about justice a lot, right? We talk about justice in the bring justice to the fatherless. We talk about it in the context of the work that we're doing a lot. Right. And really justice is making things right. And it's not right to, you know, the assault is not right, right? I mean, we, we just got through a few, you know, a couple months ago, a few months ago, and, you know, it turns out it was the last couple decades probably, probably, you know, who knows how long it went on. But the gymnastics scandal here in the United States and the Michigan State, you know, doctor. And, you know, folks around the world, it's just, it's just there's a lot of sexual assault. And I, and I imagine in the countries you're in, it's, it's no different. There just might be different scandals, different issues. Um, sometimes they'll be the same. 
But at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. And we talk about this a lot. You know, you can't just be anti-abortion. You got to be, you know, pro-life. That God has given us life and he has given us lives to encourage others. He's given us lives to share the gospel. He's given us lives to speak truth. And uh, he's given us lives to help, you know, work alongside him to make all things new. And in the context of orphan vulnerable children, it's to love them and help them to develop their God-given skills and talents. And, and you know, with broken individuals, it's to, it's to help make things right and make them, you know, whole to the extent we possibly can. And, and I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. You have anything else to add at the end, like uh, before we go into and introduce our guest for the day? Man, I, I just, I would just say, um, you know, let's, uh, let's just remember to be a voice for the voiceless mm-hmm. and, you know, in that arena as well. Uh, I'm really, really excited about our guest today as we kind of turn the corner, um, to, to talk about, um, today hosting our friend, uh, Bruce Kendrick. Yeah. So today we do, you totally just ruin the suspense as I usually build it up, <laughs> you know, for this like big reveal and you just totally blew it for me but that's okay because you know bruce will make up for it because he has a lot of really good stuff for us to to learn from him as usual bruce is the director of outreach at watermark community church some of you may know him from uh, his work with embrace his wife denise now uh runs that but he uh he's working with watermark and he's he's got a lot a lot of to share with us about the church about different partnerships with organizations about different things we could be doing um and you know and he has some uh very you know, strong opinions on different things and strong positions. And, and I think it's very good for us to, to hear a lot of it. And so even if you're listening to it, and as he even says, this might rub some people the wrong way. Usually when someone starts with that, um, usually it does and it probably will, you know, it's like, it's not, but it's not like when I tell my kids, you know, when they say no offense, but, and I tell them just don't say anything after that. Right. Like just, just, bite your tongue because nothing good is going to come after that. It's not the case in this. I think this is good for us to wrestle with these things that he's talking about in the interview because it's really good to listen to people you know you're going to disagree with. It's really good to listen to people who you who you trust and you know. And, uh, you know, I agree with most things that Bruce says, you know, but he said things in, in, in our conversations over the years that I've disagreed with, and that's okay. We're still really good friends and we learn from each other and we challenge each other. So that's what I encourage you to do with this interview and every other interview you listen to with this show. I purposefully get people on this show that, you know, I know I'm going to disagree with some of the things they say, and that's okay. And I know that some of my audience members, some of you folks out there, I know you're going to disagree with some of the things, and that's okay. And that's good because it challenges you to really think through what you're believing. So with that, grab a pen and paper. And again, if you have anything that you want to share with us, do it via info at thinkorphan.com. You can do it on the, on the website. You can do it on Facebook. Lots of different ways to get a hold of us. And I encourage you to do so because I absolutely love connecting with each and every one of you if you, you're able to, to do so. Thanks a lot. With that, we're going to send you to my interview with Bruce Kendrick. Well, Bruce, it is so great to have you. I know I say that a lot, but I really mean it here even more so than I often do because we've been talking about doing this for a very long time. Um, And so I'm excited to get you on the show today. Yeah, man. Uh, Love the work that you do with Think Orphan and Providence and uh, have loved getting to know each other and becoming friends. And yeah, looking forward to having a conversation today about just stuff that matters. All right. Well, before we get into kind of the, the, you know, talking about your church and uh, how you got to Watermark and through Embrace Texas. and But I just want to hear a little bit for those folks out there, especially who don't know you, who don't know about you and the work that uh, God's done through you. Just uh, share a little bit about your story and kind of how you got to do what you're doing today. 
Yeah, my wife and I were newlyweds, kind of dated through high school, got married real young, had our first biological daughter, moved into our first house. Uh, she had just graduated from college. I was still in and uh, getting involved in ministry at that point. And uh, we had a spare room in our in our home. And um, honestly, there wasn't really a passion. There wasn't a, a, a real thought towards foster care, adoption, orphan care, but just recognizing that everything that we owned was for, uh, for God's use and his purposes, and we were stewards of it. And so my wife approached me and said, what do you think about becoming foster parents? Um, and I thought, you know, that sounds great. You should do that. <laughs> and, um, you know, about six, seven months later, we, uh, we got licensed to foster and, you know, really just started with one child at a time. Uh, this was back in like the early 2000s and uh, we had younger kids, no intentions to adopt really. Um, just had our first biological daughter, added another biological daughter, added a biological son. And all the while we're just kind of fostering through this time and adding kids that are coming in and out in foster care. All of our kids that, that came through our home um, ended up being uh, reunified and kind of long story short, our experience of foster care led us to adopting um, now five children who are, uh, you know, just kind of different walks of life. Uh, two of them are older. One's 25 now and has three kids. So I'm a grandfather here in my, my mid thirties. Um, and then we've got a daughter from Ethiopia that uh, has dissolution as a part of kind of her story. And so we've helped some families in crisis. And then she joined our family back in 2012. And then uh, we've got a sibling group of three that came to us through foster care as well. And, um, yeah. And so uh, we've got four biological kids and our kind of age range is four to 25. Uh, just love having a big family. God just stretched us to care for a lot of kids at any given time. And, uh, somewhere about 2007, uh, a mom who had some kids in the student ministry where I was a pastor in North Dallas, uh, reached out and just said, you know, what do you think about starting an orphan care ministry here at our church? And, you know, by that time, what started as kind of an obligation to use what we had uh, out of obedience just to, to say, yes, God, you know, whatever you want us to do with this stuff, we'll do and, you know, we'll give. And um, she said, what do you, you know, what do you think about this ministry? And so, you know, that that obligation had definitely turned into a passion by then. Um, and that's how uh, we ended up starting Embrace Texas, which grew out of a small 200 member Southern Baptist church into a nonprofit that served that county and then multiplied efforts out into uh, just other parts of the state of Texas and other parts of the country as God began to open doors in 2010, 2011, and got connected to the Christian Alliance for Orphans. And Phil, that's ultimately how you and I got connected as well, mm-hmm. I think. Yep, it was. Yeah. So, uh, in that's, fact, that's we a- had a, I remember we had a breakfast, the Cracker Barrel. In, in at, like at, right by Opryland Hotel, if I remember correctly, and uh, our good friend Johnson Moore uh, connected us, and he said, "Yeah, yeah. he's the kind of the guy with a, a red beard." And I said, "Well, you know, okay, that's cool." And I found out you're much more than that. You're much more than that, and I know that's how John I'm knows more, you, but I know you as much more than that. So, um, hopefully, other people will hear that more too. So. Um, but, uh, so, you know, you went from Embrace Texas. Tell us a little bit more about what Embrace, uh, does, cause yeah. it still does. And then kind of how you, how you ended up at, at Watermark, a big church, um, in Dallas, Texas. Yeah. And so Embrace got started again, just at that small church. And originally the idea was just to kind of care for the, 
the families there. And then we quickly realized that there were a lot of other families in other churches and even people who weren't, um, you know, a part of a, a believing church or believers themselves just going, hey, we need help, too. And so we got connected to uh, the North American Council on Adoptable Children, which is up out of Minneapolis, kind of a secular organization. But they trained us how to do um, support for foster adoptive families. So we launched a support group and we're working with families. And pre- prior to that, had kind of struggled to really get anything off the ground, but just knew that God wanted us to be more than well-intentioned, wanted us to do more than just like donation drives and things like that. And um, man, God just blessed kind of our diligence and uh, a lot of the relationships and things that opened the door. I like to say, you know, it's th- there just weren't a lot of people doing what uh, we were doing at that time. And so it was easy to kind of become you know, somebody who, who knew what he was talking about, um, because not just not many people knew. And mm-hmm. so the ministry grew and, uh, we got, we stayed connected with that, uh, that organization and they actually trained us how to do, um, advocacy work in DC. And, and then we got connected to, to others and really just got to use our experience both as a foster family, uh, and then an adoptive family, uh, and then a kinship family to help serve, other families in our area. And as needs continued to rise and we saw gaps in the services that the state provides and the services that nonprofits provide, we realized that the, that the church was really asleep at the wheel and um, became known for equipping churches to support foster and adoptive families within. Uh, and then that kind of grew into a, a much broader effort to then multiply churches and something more thoughtful and strategic and uh, really raise up even collaborative networks of churches in counties and in regions, both across the state and across the country, um, to the point that in 2015, our family took a year-long road trip and traveled the country, uh, stopping in about 25 cities to engage churches who had kind of asked us to come and help them get something off the ground. And then there were you know, situations in other parts of the country, we were like, hey, no, we're good. Like, we've got this all up and going, and, and you know, we'd love for you all to just come see what we have. So it was a great learning opportunity to also see what other cities already had going uh, for those who had developed efforts and, and really glean wisdom and, and some, you know, experiential knowledge from them. And then uh, last July, uh, came back home or had been home and, and was, uh, was just reinvesting in our efforts here in North Texas and got a call from a friend here at Watermark who I'd been in touch with for a few years prior. And he said, hey, Watermark, um, it, it wants to take on the foster care issue in Dallas County. And, um, you know, if you kind of know the, the national scope of, you know, what's happening in foster care, you know, Dallas County uh, is really one of the larger child welfare populations in the country. And certainly not the largest, but, you know, one of the larger ones. And and uh, I just went, man, that's a game changer. Um, you know, it, I it's I'm intrigued by the by the opportunity. But, you know, to be honest, like I know a lot of people who who are also doing similar work as I am, but we're all really invested in what we're doing. And my friend just responded and said, well, I'm, I'm glad you're intrigued. Can we just have a conversation? And I thought the conversation would be real brief. Uh, I thought it would be you know, more of an opportunity or an ask for, for somebody to come to, to Watermark and just kind of manage the ministry within the walls. And, uh, and I said, you know, I, I appreciate that vision and that heart, but that's not really what I do. Uh, I mean, I, I think it is a, a huge piece of it, but 
uh, I have a much bigger vision. And they said, well, we have a much bigger vision as well. And Watermark's influenced through a couple of different ministries that have started out of here, uh, one called Regeneration, which used to be the largest Celebrate Recovery ministry in the country, and then another called Reengage, which is just an incredibly impactful marriage ministry, uh, have both been kind of born here and then multiplied across the country. And um, it, I just quickly saw the opportunity that that uh, we had to not only impact one of the larger child welfare populations, but also to uh, to take a church and and really make it uh, excellent in the space of uh, foster care adoption, family restoration ministry. And uh, yeah, so jumped on board last October and uh, really have have felt the cynicism uh, that I pre- previously had in working with churches, both uh, from a nonprofit perspective and from a individual perspective, just a lot of skepticism on my own part. Um, that has maybe a little bit less to do with the church and more to just do with my own issues, but uh, have seen that cynicism in my own life just start to melt away the longer that I've been here. And so uh, really excited about what's ahead. That's great. And I, I think what I'd like to do is just kind of follow follow on with that and, and to say what has happened, like what good has happened, what has happened in your own life, but also in, in the ministry itself to kind of help that cynicism uh, you know, break down that cynicism that you've had? Yeah, well, I think there's, you know, I think there's some healthy skepticism, certainly, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, we, we tend, especially if you've been in ministry and been around the church for a while, it's like we, we speak in kind of ministerial terms. And what that what that typically means kind of tongue in cheek is that uh, we're inflating what's actually happening. Um, and not that that doesn't happen everywhere, but I think what has been really healthy for me in coming here is that uh, Watermark's the kind of place where uh, our leadership, you know, when people are joining uh, this church, A, they're not joining for a lifetime. Uh, and so we reset the membership here at Watermark every single year by effectively just asking, hey, are you still in this battle with us? Um, and people, who come to Watermark kind of looking for a place to uh, belong and be fed and be cared for. Not that those things don't happen here, but they typically don't stay here because they're looking for some place to be served. Um, But the more people that I've met as I've been on board here the past nine months are really the kind of people who go, look, I I didn't join this church so that I could just fill a spot on Sunday morning and give my tithe. I came to this church because I recognized the desire and a longing to go to battle against some of the strongholds in our community. And I want to be both equipped and put on the front lines. Um, and so I think that's where I've seen just personally a difference. And not that that can't be the case in a smaller church, but um, that is definitely the case here. And uh, I mean, it's just, it's just kind of, again, melted away that cynicism where we talk a lot about how we want to see, you know, the bondage of sin, you know, be broken in the lives and hearts of people. But uh, we don't actually put that into practice or we don't actually equip our our uh, our friends and family members, you know, there within our church to do that. Um, and so that's, I think, where some of that cynicism for me has come. Uh, and, and admittedly, uh, we've not conquered the foster care crisis in Dallas County. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I'm not uh, by any means, like, to be honest, there's still, there's still a piece of me that has that kind of skepticism of like, okay, but we haven't done it yet. 
but there's certainly lots of things in motion that uh, I'm really encouraged by, especially just the willingness of our leadership, you know, as I stepped on where they said, hey, look, like we didn't bring you on to, to limit you. Um, and we didn't bring you on to stifle your, your vision or your creativity. If anything, you know, we just want Watermark to be a platform to leverage that, that vision and, um, you know, for us to, to jump on board with you because we see, uh, you know, kind of the work that has been led through Embrace Texas and some of the advocacy work we were doing down in Austin and even in D.C. where, um, you know, we're just looking at how, to, how do we better partner with the state? How do we better partner with strategic leaders in, you know, the, the uh, you know, the nonprofit or NGO, NGO world and uh, really not just measure ourselves by whether we made a difference in the life of, you know, one child or one family or these kind of anecdotal things. But, um, you know, we want to see systemic reform. You know, we want to see measurable outcomes. And uh, anyway, that's that's been the kind of thing that's been really encouraging about being here. Hmm. Yeah, some of, uh, also that I know a lot of our listeners, I know that because I've talked with a lot of them um, and uh, also, you know, myself, just talking about how can we get churches, you know, and it sounds like Watermark is moving this direction, um, but uh, churches to get orphan care and what we know through James one twenty seven through Isaiah 1, through so many other verses. Um, my wife challenged me to, to find a bunch of verses because I said in a recent talk that the Bible talks about loving the orphan and the vulnerable and the oppressed throughout. She's like, don't just say it, prove it, you know, where are all the verses. So I went yeah. and got, a, you know, like 20 something, put them onto a sheet and said, all right, this is just the start. But, you know, just to show that I'm not, you know, blowing smoke, but it is throughout scripture. We know that we talk about it in the orphan care space at KFO Summit said together for adoption, whatever you name the conference, we're talking about it. But most people in churches today don't think about it as part of, you know, their call as, you know, just being a Christian, you will have God's heart, which cries out for the orphan. How can we do a better job of that in churches rather than complaining about it, not being there? How can we, um, in these churches, you know, encourage the senior leadership to be preaching about how can we be doing different things to help make it part of the DNA, um, uh, of the church? Well, I think there are three things that come come to mind immediately for me, and two of them are things I think we can stop doing. Um, and this is going to sound a little counterintuitive, and it may even come across as offensive towards some of my friends, and it's certainly not how I mean it. But I think things like Orphan Sunday uh, or Stand Sunday, if you're kind of in the foster care space, uh, have their place. However, it gives the idea that if we will just dedicate one Sunday a year, to this, that then we can kind of check that box off and our pastor's appeased and, and, you know, we're appeased because our pastors, you know, have kind of given us that one Sunday and we feel like, you know, that somehow has achieved it. And, and our pastor, Todd Wagner, reached out to me a couple weeks ago and just said, hey, you know, what what's one thing I can do that would be uh, really helpful to you as we try and continue this forward? And I just said, you know what, I don't need you to dedicate another Sunday this year to, um, you know, the, the foster care crisis or uh, the abortion issue or uh, any of the things that I've been working on since I've joined, you know, I said, I, I really need you to take every opportunity uh, where it, it's a fit and it's an application in your message uh, to just bring it back up to the forefront and say, hey, a way that you can live out this passage that we've been talking about today is by opening your home and uh, caring for, for children who are in foster care, or opening your home to, to care for a child who's waiting to be adopted. Uh, and better yet, even caring for a family 
who has a child in foster care so we can restore that family rather than, um, you know, rather than have to create a new one. And so, Mm -hmm. uh, that's been something that, that has been really helpful here is I would say, uh, at least once a month, it's a, it's a concerted intentional point of focus as an application and a message, uh, where we're just talking about being stewards of the things that God has given us and being intentional and thoughtful so that, uh, we're impactful in our faith. Um, I think a second thing that, and I've been guilty of this as well, I think early on, and and this phrase is still used quite frequently, um, is that, um, uh, it's something to the effect, we say something to the effect of, you know, not everyone is, is called to foster or adopt, but everyone can do something. Mm -hmm. And uh, I appreciate that, that idea but again, I think what happens is as soon as we say not everyone is called to foster or adopt, first of all, we assimilate or we associate the idea with foster care or adoption as a calling, which it's not. It's just biblically a point of who we are as Christians to care for the fatherless. Um, but, but secondly, and maybe more importantly, as soon as we say not everyone is called to foster or adopt, we immediately kind of give people a pass. And there's sort of this idea of, okay, well, if not everyone's called to foster or adopt, then I don't have to foster or adopt. So I don't even have to wrestle with uh, that effort. And therefore we get, you know, it's kind of a, let's just set the bar real low Mm -hmm. and then expect, you know, kind of low expect, uh, you know, low commitment from people. And and if we can do that, and I, I think there are some efforts that are going on around the country where that's true, where we've kind of said, well, if the church isn't going to engage in the kind of masses that we wish they would, then let's just set the bar real low. And I'm not talking about discipling people into a, a more full understanding of what it is to care for uh, the fatherless or to care for vulnerable families. I'm talking about people that are just kind of like, hey, you know, the church isn't going to do much, so let's just give them toy drives or let's just give them kind of meet basic needs and just leave them there. Um, and uh, and so I just think that's a disservice that uh, we should probably transition away from sooner rather than later. And then the last thing, uh, and this, again, may come across as somewhat dismissive, dismissive or arrogant, is uh, the idea that that we really need to beg churches <laughs> to get engaged in this area of ministry. Um, I, I told my friend, uh, Andrew Holland, uh, who runs a, a ministry here in, in Fort Worth. Uh, I just said, man, uh, the church is sick. And, uh, in some cases, in some cases, you know, we have local expressions of the church that are dead. Uh, and you know, we spend a whole lot of our time trying to resurrect these dead churches. Um, when we have these young, thriving, sometimes church plants, sometimes large churches, sometimes small churches who uh, we, we could better use, uh, I think, our resources and our focus with. And um, and so, you know, it's the the sick, the dead churches that are across this country are, man, they're just killing us. And um, I, I, I'm not convinced of this, to be honest, but there's a part of me that wants to encourage people to engage in the healthy churches that are in their community. And again, to kind of find themselves, not just entering a church going, hey, what will this church give me? But is this church uh, preparing themselves for battle in such a way that I can join them on the front lines, that I can be a part of this and be an, uh, a steward or an owner in uh, you know in this battle? And so 
Um, you know, it's not that, that I am dismissive about, you know, the, the sick and dead churches that are across this country, but, um, there, there is a part of me that just wants to say, look, let's just let the dead churches die and know that, uh, that there's still a battle to be waged, uh, and fight forward. And so I think those are some, I mean, obviously there's a number of other things when I think about just discipling, uh, our church rather than just coming in and doing a few projects, um, that, that tends to be something that, that I find is, you know, the project mentality, like we, we often spend a lot of time ramping up for some big carnival or some, uh, event. And we get that volunteer team to kind of back that, especially in lay led ministries. And then, you know, as soon as they're done, they're worn out and, uh, and they lose any momentum that they might've had because they failed this plan sort of a, okay, what next? Uh, and so I think that's really important as well, just in thinking through kind of a progression of programs or, or opportunities rather that would disciple their church into uh, really being more engaged in uh, the needs of the children and families there in their community and even those within their own walls. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with uh, what you were talking about. I, I've talked to several people about Orphan Sunday and saying it can't end there. It can't be the check the box. It can't be. And if to the extent it becomes that, then we need to stop it. But, you know, if you talk to the Orphan Sunday folks, and I agree with them on this too, that it's a good start if you have nothing. So sure. I think that as long as it's seen as that and actually in practice is, is, is effectively um, uh, acted out as that, then I think then, then it's a great thing. But if it becomes check the box and now we're done and we do one Sunday a year, well, that, that I don't believe is what God's calling us to do. Um, but I do want to kind of follow up on that too, though, with talking about the dead churches, uh, and the, you know, young, vibrant churches. And I don't think that's exactly the words you use, but let's, you know, let's say the the churches that are kind of getting it and that are living out the gospel, um, and preaching the gospel and teaching it and truth indeed. And, word indeed, whatever you want to say. And then those that are just kind of going through the motions. But what I would say, what I'd ask there is, you know, whether an NGO, whether an individual, um, how can we, first of all, kind of diagnose that, you know, without judging and condemning <laughs> and saying you're a terrible church and you're awful. Yeah. Um, cause that's not what either of us are saying here. I don't think. No, not at all. <laughs> and say, you know, um, but also how do you, you know, engage the, but how do you, how do you diagnose that either way, whether great or, you know, whether it's vibrant and living or dead. And then to the extent you say, you know what, is there a kind of a resuscitation you can do potentially to try kind of the defib- defibrillator for lack of a, a better, uh, <laughs> analogy <laughs> to try to get them going? Or do you just kind of say, you know, stop, you have some idea there, first of all, secondly, um, and it's related in the question of, you know, with those that are alive, how can we best engage them? For those out there who are listening, who are an organization or just a passionate orphan care advocate, how to best engage those churches to say, you know what, this is something that is the heart of the heart of scripture, heart of, you know, this is the core of God's heart. How can we best move forward together to get our church to understand it and to disciple rather than just say, we need to disciple. What are some good ways we can disciple? Certainly. Yeah. And I think first, first, to your point, I, I'm, I'm positive I didn't articulate, you know, my my point about the dead church well, but um, I, I think the the uh, the need there, the opportunity there, because I've got a number of friends who have become friends and great advocates from churches who were doing nothing, uh, and so it wasn't that their church was dead; it was just more of uh, you know their church was unaware or asleep, and. 
um, and you know they just needed somebody to come along and model it for them. Uh, and that's mostly been what we've experienced here in, in North Texas, where it's sort of a, we've been piloting things and organizing things. And, um, and as we've organized and as we've piloted and found success, other churches have come along and said, hey, we hear you're doing this, or we see that you're doing this, or our members are coming from our church to your church in order to, to be served in this way. We want to do this too. And so it really is, a, you know, a discipleship model, I think much in the same way that, you know, Jesus has you know, the thousands on the hillside and, and his disciples say, Hey, you know, Jesus send them away so they can go get dinner. And, and, uh, and Jesus responds and says, uh, they don't need to go away. You feed them. Uh, and, and it really is that opportunity for us to feed the masses and go, Hey, look, just come alongside us and, and watch how this can be done. Uh, and then you can take it back to your church and you can multiply it. So it's it's rarely, if ever, I think, a productive approach to just say one church should try and think of themselves as fixing fixing all of the op, the uh, all of the needs and and all of the problems for the children and families in their community. It really does have to be this kind of collaborative effort. Um, unfortunately, when we start to talk about collaborative efforts, we find ourselves doing less collaboration and more of just kind of telling one another what we're doing individually and then calling that collaboration. Mm -hmm. So that's not at all what I mean, um, you know, when I speak about that. And again, it, it does require bandwidth. And I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, something where we've said, Hey, we're doing this. We'd love for you to come along for the ride with us. Um, you know, we'll know that we're going to continue to invest in your efforts if you came along for the ride and if you stayed invested. But, you know, if you're one of those people that, you know, we gave a little bit to a little bit of responsibility and you didn't come through, well, that may be the end of kind of our investment in helping you or helping your church get going unless other leaders kind of step up and show promise. But it really does take a handful of owners who are going to come along. And if your church is so small that you don't have a handful of your own owners to really lead and steward this ministry, it may be that uh, you need to collaborate and connect with other churches who don't have, you know, that those handful of owners and work together on that uh, until you do have something. And so I think one of the things that I was initially kind of um, just misunderstood about here at Watermark was uh, we put on a conference in April called the Church Leaders Conference. And, uh, it, and it's almost all Watermark staff or it is all Watermark staff led, like we're the ones speaking and all the breakouts and that kind of thing. And Initially, I just went, man, that seems really arrogant that we would think that we kind of have the best model. And then as I actually attended it and spoke at it, uh, I began to realize that's not the approach at all. It's just we're hosting and and many of, of our speakers are up front and going, hey, look, if you've got a better model, if you learn something better, stand up and tell us. Um, and it's been super encouraging also just to see it not necessarily coming from a, uh, a nonprofit perspective saying, hey, you know, we're going to train the church how to do all these things as a nonprofit, but to have a church go, hey, we're the church, and we're going to work with our brothers and sisters uh, in, in Christ here and continue to raise up and continue to, to press forward, uh, even to the point that many pastors who came and elders who came and other church leaders that came to this conference said, you should stop apologizing for the success that you're seeing in your ministry, um, which I thought was just a really, again, just a really interesting as kind of being somebody who came in from the outside of the church, not really knowing the DNA uh, of what was happening here, 
to learn some of those perspectives from others and kind of how they were seeing it. But um, I do think there's a there's a, a necessity, uh, obviously for nonprofits, but definitely for churches to to lock arms together. And uh, that's what we're working on here in Dallas as we continue to move forward. Um, the second part of your question, uh, you'll have to remind me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was effectively just how can we take real steps? Like what are some practical, yeah, yeah, yeah. real, you know, rather than just kind of sitting in theory of, you know, let's, or even just in general, you know, of let's, we need to come together and work together. You know, what are some practical ways that nonprofits, churches, um, churches and other churches can can actually and individuals as well work together um, to learn from each other, but also actively work together. You know, like you said, yeah. I mean, to, yeah. to most people call collaboration just sitting around a table and talking to each other, but that's not that's yeah, that's, that's not, not that's talking to each other. The, the collaboration <laughs> is really working with each other. So, what does that yeah. really look like in a practical way? Being that you've been on both sides of it. Yeah. So I'll speak to kind of the nonprofit side of it first. But um, I think some of the most practical things that nonprofits can do is, one, um, maintain a framework for churches that are working together because there is such fluidity and a lack of continuity or consistency among leaders, especially because so many of these ministries are lay led. Uh, you know, we experienced that for the first probably five or six years with Embrace Texas, where we were going into churches meeting with staff, meeting with lay leaders, equipping them, sitting down, spending lots of time, kind of walking them through, helping them develop kind of their vision. And then a year or two in, we saw, you know, leaders burn out, leaders move away, and, you know, really nothing left of that ministry other than a page on their website and somebody to kind of answer some questions when somebody's interested in foster care adoption. And that's obviously not ministry. That's not what we're talking about. Um, And so what we did instead is we kind of flipped the script a bit and just said, you know, what if we kind of owned the uh, the collaboration and the network here within this given county? I mean, I do think there's some proximity issues that I don't think uh, can go beyond a county. Maybe if you're in a real rural setting, you might do more of a regional setup, but um, that there's an, a necessary element of having somebody just say, look, we're going to be responsible for bringing people together, you know, no less than once a quarter. We're going to be responsible for Uh, really facilitating a dialogue to identify some initiatives that we think are critical to our community to help meet needs and to onboard churches. And, um, you know, we started with an effort that's now called the second story that uh, works with the waiting child population in uh, in, in that given county. Uh, And the churches are responsible really for being the advocates for the kids who are waiting to be adopted. Each church is kind of assigned one kid. So that it's not necessarily like, hey, there are over 100,000 children waiting to be adopted in the United States and millions across the world. And here in Texas, over 7,000, you know, where we just kind of vomit um, statistics at them and then assume that somebody is going to be really moved by those huge numbers. And instead, we might give them all those numbers still, but we ultimately give them a child to be um, – you know, to, to be accountable for and to be the advocate for where that church is then responsible for finding that child a family, whether it's a family within their church or a family that's connected to somebody within their church, uh, or maybe it's a family at, at one of the other partnering churches on that initiative. And the role that the nonprofit gets to play in that is uh, maintaining a, a memorandum of understanding and kind of the legal role of, you know, making sure that that policies and things that protect the best interests of that child. So we're not just uh, you know, kind of, um, 
you know, real fast and loose with policies and confidentiality and just thoughtless in regards to, you know, that child's perception or even the foster family. Cause you know, certainly these kids don't just need one more adult in their life. Who's going to be around for a year and then bail on them. So, uh, it, there's just some opportunities like that where you can identify some initiatives and go, you know, what's strategic, what are some gaps, what are some major gaps in our community where that nonprofit can bring those churches together and then help walk them through and provide the continuity and the accountability necessary. And, and there's some funding involved in that, but um, really the role there is is just to um, just to provide structure where you know a, a collaboration may not have that if they don't have some some central organization uh, to work with them. That so mm-hmm. that's what I would say you know, to the nonprofit side, there's certainly lots of other things that nonprofits can do and uh, be engaged in beyond that. But I think that's really critical, uh, practically speaking, um, on the, the church side in regards to, um, really getting engaged. I, for the last 10 years that I've been doing this, I've thought that there was really just one best place to start. Um, and that is family support. So wrapping around foster and adopted families, developing, you know, kind of a support community structure for those families to ensure that they're not isolated. And when we look at the statistics for, um, you know, for foster care specifically, we know that the turnover rate of frontline caseworkers is, uh, just incredibly high. And that, that really, uh, limits the, the foster care system to be effective, um, you know, we also know that roughly 75 percent uh, of foster families no longer foster one to two years after their first placement. So if you've got such a high rate of, of foster care parents turning over and such a high rate of frontline caseworkers turning over, it's not hard to imagine why the foster care system really struggles to succeed and and, uh, and keep families healthy and and return kids home. And so. Uh, our response to that initially was this family support model where we're building structures, wrapping around families, something that, that we've developed here is nothing necessarily earth shattering about the model, but uh, we just call them care circles where we tell families, and this is something that I've picked up from my friends at Project 127, is we tell families, look, unless you've got four people who are going to care for you when you start this foster care adoption journey, you probably should wait. Um and uh, we've developed kind of a, a family crisis advocates component as well for those families who you know have that support, but that support maybe isn't as intentional or as as um, knowledgeable as they should be or could be, uh, just because they might just be family and friends or people in their community group or small group at church or neighbors. Um, and so we have some some experienced foster adoptive families who have been through crisis kind of come alongside those families when they experience crisis so that we're eliminating and reducing disruptions and dissolutions uh, for our for our church families. And um, and we've developed some support groups and things like that. But that used to be the thing that I like honed in on was mm-hmm. if you can only do one thing, do foster and adoptive parenting or uh, do support for foster and adoptive mm-hmm. parents. And we've even like tacked on things like parents night out events, which you know we'll try and do two or three, four times a year for four or five hours to give parents a free night, which is something churches, you know, can maintain some normalcy on. And we found those to be really effective. Uh, my wife, Denise wrote a, uh, like a guide on how to do that, that, uh, people can find that's just called one wild night on Amazon. Um, I will apologize for the title and what else will come up in that search whenever you look at it. (laughs) Well, maybe it will be a wild night when the parents actually get out. So, you know, who knows? Um, 
Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the thing that's come up since I joined Watermark, though, and this is something that I've never uh, in the past decade of doing this heard a pastor say, or anyone say for that matter, is um, our, our pastor Todd back in uh, September said this as he was kind of preaching on it um, for our Orphan Sunday, which I now realize is, sounds somewhat hypocritical. <laughs> Nonetheless, um, he said, we want to be the kind of church that when uh, a family has their children removed, CPS says, go to Watermark, they'll help you get your kids back. Mm. And um, man, that has just kind of stuck in my mind. And, and I think as foster adopted families, we've all recognized that we wish somebody would have gone upstream. We even might wish ourselves would have gone upstream to help prevent the kind of abuse or neglect that, that the children that we ended up adopting or the children that were in our care as foster children, um, you know, had, we all wish we would have gone upstream. Uh, and I've been asking this question for the past couple of years of CPS <coughs> and, um, and as I've asked this question of like, what is actually being done to help restore these children to their families? What kind of services are these children or are these children's parents rather getting? Um, and I keep coming back to and getting these responses of, well, these are my friends who work for the state. They're saying, well, you know how, you know, we really struggle to maintain frontline caseworkers and how we put more money into that. We put more money into that. We put more money into foster care or foster home reimbursements or, you know, we put more money into transition services or whatever it is. Uh, all that money is, is coming from somewhere and, and typically not going into prevention efforts. Uh, so the funding to keep these families together or the funding to keep these families um, back together when, whenever reunification has happened uh, is just not there. And so there's a lot of lip service that we're giving to that. And judges are, are desperate for high quality services for these biological parents. Um, and, you know, when we, when we had this message back in September here at Watermark, we had this huge response of people that said they wanted to foster or adopt. Um, like uh, there were something like 400 families came to an info meeting we did a, a couple weeks later, which is the largest response that I'd ever seen from any churches that I'd worked with prior to that as a, as a part of Embrace. And, um, and it, so it was overwhelming. And I thought we were going to be inundated with families. And then when our annual membership renewal process kind of came up again, we call it the 4B, came up again. We had over 3,000 people say they wanted to foster adopt. They were interested in foster care adoption. And, uh, I mean, I, I, I was assuming that I was about to have to manage a flood, um, and was kind of bracing myself for that. And so I followed up with those people that said they were interested and, um, the response was, was underwhelming, um, because I was seeking clarity and I just asked now, how many of you who've said you're interested in foster care adoption are actually prepared to engage in this in the next six to 12 months? And it was something like, 3% of them were prepared to respond. We had a lot of young couples. We even had unmarried people who were like, Hey, I, I'm, I'm going to engage in this when I get married. I just am not dating anyone yet. Um, we even had like teenagers who said, yes, I want to do this. So it was really encouraging to see kind of the future, uh, and the interest in that. But in regards to like what's happening right now, I just went, man, okay, so we're not going to have the kind of overnight change that I was, that I was preparing for based upon some of those results. 
And so I just thought, gosh, if we're not going to empty the waiting child population on the back end of this crisis, uh, and we're not going to be able to raise up all of the foster families that we had hoped that we'd be able to raise up, you know, with just kind of the snap of our fingers and putting the call out there uh, that's going on right now, then there's got to be another outlet to uh, keep these children from needing to become adopted. Uh, and I realize that adoption is this beautiful thing. However, we, we recognize that it begins with loss. And so what's happened is, is we reached out to CPS and said, hey, we want to be the church, as our pastor mentioned, where you send families who have their children removed so they can be reunified. And they said, well, you should go talk to some of our prevention partners. And I went and sat down with an organization called New Day Services, uh, who came highly recommended from CPS. And starting this fall, we'll be hosting really the first classes for uh, biological moms who have had their children removed, the court-ordered classes, uh, in order for them to, to start the process of, of getting their kids back. And that not only gives us the opportunity to have those women on our campus and to share the love of Christ with them, uh, it also gives our members an opportunity to not only be destigmatized from the children who are in foster care, because I think that's part of it as we continue to lead our family support efforts and our recruitment efforts, but it also gives us the opportunity to destigmatize our members from those biological parents who we almost always just assume are the enemy and who just woke up one day and decided to neglect or abuse their child. Uh, but we just we know that's not the case. We just haven't spent time actually humanizing who these men and women are and uh, recognizing that many of them were in foster care themselves or, or grew up in poverty or uh, they didn't, again, just wake up one morning and decide to become an addict or uh, abuse or neglect their child. And so uh, when I think about practical things, again, I previously thought family support was the one and only and best way to go. And I now find myself holding up this prevention restoration piece and going, man, what an incredible opportunity that we're missing, especially for those who, you know, when we say things like you may not be called to foster adopt, but everybody can do something. Man, this is a something that may even be a better uh, answer to the foster care crisis than opening your home to foster or adopt. Hmm. Um, and again, it sounds weird to say that after doing that this for ten years. And I, I'm a little, um, I'm I'm a little shocked that I didn't pick up on this earlier or spend time doing it earlier. I know that that I'm. It's not like I've had this revelation and no one's thought of this. But um, you know, organizations like Lifeline and They've got a, a, a deal called Family Counts that uh, has some merit that I, I think people can look into, churches can look into. <clears throat> but we really uh, are looking at this of, of kind of a, hey, Watermark wants to address the continuum. And, uh, you know, we're certainly not just going to try and, and create new families when families exist, that these kids have moms and dads that just lack the, uh, you know, the support and, and some of the, the resources to, to really be able to care for their children well. They love their kids. Uh, they might even be decent parents. Um, they just have, have lived in circumstances that, that have not, uh, not allowed them to do so, or maybe they've made choices that have caused this. Uh, and so we have the opportunity to be the church and to speak restoration and hope back into their life. And uh, I think it's a, a huge opportunity for the church that I hope will see the, the pendulum you know, as it's kind of come back from an adoption first adoption only mentality anyway, um, start to swing and, and really be balanced 
in our approach to understanding that that foster adoption, orphan care is really about family restoration mm-hmm. uh, as much as it is about anything else. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, those who listen to the show a lot know that I talk about this a lot with and a lot, yeah. as do a lot of the guests, just the, the idea of if we could, you know, disciple men and women um, to know their identities and to really live them out um, as godly men and women, we'd alleviate a lot of the orphan crisis around the world. And yeah. I know that's a massive if, but, uh, you know, I, I hope and pray that it happens, you know, and we can continue doing that. So I, I get really encouraged to hear, hear you talk about that. So, um, well, as we're winding down, there's a couple more questions we ask everybody. Um, the first is what have you read, watched, or listened to, uh, that has impacted your thinking on how we can love orphaned and vulnerable children with excellence? Yeah, I just finished a book called Growing God's Family by, uh, Family by Samuel Perry. He's a sociologist at the University of Oklahoma, uh, and it's kind of a textbook. It was in response to Catherine Joyce's um, The Child Catchers. Child catchers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and uh, it, he, he had an interesting kind of take on Catherine's, uh, Catherine's approach and some of the other criticism of the, um, you know, of the orphan care, the evangelical orphan care movement. Um, but I, I found it uh, somewhat lacking just in his approach being really a thought that that uh, the Christian community should just open the floodgates. Uh, in other words, let's just remove everything that makes us uniquely Christian from the movement and, um, you know, kind of give lip service to those things, but but really lose our identity in the fact that we recognize that the gospel is truly the answer that every child and family um, needs. And uh, and so anyway, it, it just kind of uh, had me rethink through my convictions about why we do what we do. And I found myself really coming back to an understanding of no, that like the gospel really is central and uh, it's where we put our stake in the ground and uh, we, we don't get to abandon it in favor of really anything else because when we do, then children really have lost all hope. Mm -hmm. Um, And so even though that wasn't what he was, he was saying, it was certainly uh, what I learned and kind of what I took from it, um, and was really encouraged by, uh, by some of the things that were said and also challenged by some of the other things that were said is, you know, you always kind of look at the stats and, and look at, you know, what somebody who is looking from the outside in says, and, uh, you know, just take the opportunity to, to be open to criticism and, um, you know, reflect upon what our impact has been and then to renew and refresh your approach if it needs some some refreshment. Absolutely. Last question. Uh, what person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? Oh, um, gosh, they've got to be probably a two, three dozen people. Yeah. Of who course. Have, who have really impacted. Any one representative person. <clears throat> yeah. I, uh, I hope I'm assuming people uh, or maybe people don't know this name, but uh, Michael Monroe probably mm-hmm. moves to the top. Uh, Michael led uh, a ministry called Tapestry at Irving Bible Church here in, in North Texas, uh, mm-hmm. worked with Karen Purvis to develop Empowered to Connect and um, was a friend, has been a friend rather, uh, that really just kind of uh, came along and, and I think a lot of what I've shared today kind of is in his spirit 
Uh, I remember sitting with him over over uh, Papa Cito's one day, and he just said, "Hey, just keep pushing the envelope and keep pushing things that kind of set people on edge, and and uh, let's continue to challenge the status quo." Um, and so uh, Mike was incredibly encouraging, not because he was willing to uh, to hold our hand when we were getting started, but because he wasn't willing to hold our hand, and uh, because he said, "Hey, look, if you're going to get up to speed, then let's go and take this seriously." and uh, this isn't just a pet project for you. This isn't just a, a volunteer deal that, you know, you kind of get to use your extra bandwidth in. Uh, there are children and there are families uh, who are literally falling apart, kids who are literally dying in, in isolation and loneliness. And, um, you know, these aren't just statistics. Uh, we're barely scratching the surface on a lot of this stuff to begin with. And so let's not take ourselves lightly. Let's have a sense of urgency. And, um, Let's be uh, both intentional and thoughtful, but also passionate about this and uh, and get after it. And so let's go, church. we got things to do. Right. Well, thanks so much, Bruce. And, uh, you know, I as expected, you definitely uh, brought a lot of wisdom that I think will help a lot of people. So thank you so much for your time. And uh, I just I'd look forward to continuing our conversation real soon. Awesome. Thanks, Phil. Appreciate the opportunity. Well, thanks again, Bruce, for uh, sharing all that uh, you've been learning there at Watermark with us. And uh, I just I just really look forward to seeing how people are able to take what he's sharing with us and be able to use it in their different ministries, um, at churches, different organizations, and uh, hopefully be able to just really help more and more families, more and more children be able to get into families. So, so Rick, you know, what would you think of the, the conversation I was able to have with Bruce? Man, um, you know, anytime you sit down with Bruce is uh, is always a it's a great time. He's he's always incredibly challenging. Uh, I echo what you said in the open. You know, you may not always agree, uh, but you have to love the passion and and the engagement that, uh, you know, that Bruce comes at the issue with. He is um, he certainly dedicated his whole life to, um, you know, to the church and to the care of of orphan and vulnerable children. Um, you know, I think, I think one thing that I, I would be, I would want to be really careful of as, uh, you know, just as we, as we process is, is that question of, you know, us judging the deadness of the church. Mm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just yeah. like, um, at, at the end of the day, and, and maybe this is just old school, but I, you know, I come at this from the perspective of, of just being very, very careful, um, with the, the things that we say and the estimations of the church and, and, and just kind of how we, you know, how we put that wisdom to it. I, I remember an old pastor saying to me one time, um, you know, how do you like it when somebody talks about your wife? Mm. Um, and the truth is I hate it when somebody talks about my wife, there's nothing, there's nothing that probably can get me any more offended or any more fired up faster. Um, and, and his, his comment to me was, um, just be really careful because that's what we do when we talk about the church. Mm. Um, we're talking about Jesus bride. Mm -hmm. And, and so, um, just having seen so many instances of uh, really, quite honestly, uh, caring for orphan and vulnerable children, breathing life and breathing vitality um, back into the church, reawakening gospel purpose, um, that I just want to be really careful not to, 
you know, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And that in many of those churches, um, what it really serves to do is to be a reminder to folks that maybe have, have, have think that gospel ministry has passed them by for them to find a way to use their gifts and talents and abilities, uh, you know, for the kingdom and for the king uh, in, in the way that they put the gospel on display for orphan and vulnerable children. And, and so, um, you know, just kind of a kind of a call and a caution to be charitable in that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I like, you know, there's certain things I try to do in the interview and the fact that I was able to, I think, bring it back to that question that you just talked about. How can we disciple the churches who are doing nothing about orphan care? Like you don't need to make the judgment because usually that judgment comes down to like a numbers thing is your, are your numbers dwindling? Well, your numbers could be dwindling for, because you're starting to preach the gospel, a true gospel and you hadn't been before. Your numbers could be dwindling because of a lot of reasons. Um, you know, that's an indicator, right? But again, it's not our job to do that. Just like it's not our job to say you're a right. Christian or you're not a Christian. Now you can recognize things by the fruits. If you're in a relationship with that particular person, if you're in a relationship with a pastor of a church that you have some concerns about, you can talk to them about it. But if we're doing orphan care work and we're saying, you know, we're going to go talk to different churches and then we say, look, you know, you're not, you're not really actively doing an orphan care right now, but maybe just maybe God's put you in their lives and then the church's life to come in and you know, maybe revive it, to bring some, some true gospel conversation to that church, you know? And, and so that's, that's, you know, who knows, but again, it's not our job to come in and be like, yeah, we're the church police here and you're, you're just not, you're not, you're not, up to snuff right now. Right. Like that's, that's not what we're about. Right. You know, and yeah, in, in the same way, you know, I think it was interesting, you know, when he said like, um, you know, I get what he's talking about, like orphan Sunday, that was a strong statement. Right. Cause there's a lot right. of great, and then he kind of came around to saying, you know, look, we do an orphan Sunday that might seem hypocritical, <laughs> you know, and it was funny to me because it was just like, because that's the type of thing you sometimes make and we all do it. Right. We all make statements and then we're like, okay, right. let's back off of it a little bit because obviously there's some amazing things that, that, that have and can happen through orphan Sunday. But I totally get his point. There's also the thing you can say, we did orphan Sunday, check the box. We're done. And that's not what we want either. So yeah. And, and Phil, I want to be charitable as well. Cause yeah. you know, Bruce and the guys at watermark are friends yeah, and, and you know, just love their church and love what, what God's doing there. And I think, um, you know, the truth is that, that this is a, a church and a people, and he's a part of a team that, um, you know, that gives of themselves to disciple and to bring vitality to, you know, to a host of churches mm-hmm. around the world. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and so like when, when Bruce speaks of, um, you know, the ability for the church to disciple in orphan care and, and talks about us, you know, kind of partnering together and doing collaboration, but that, that being a way to sort of seed plant to other churches and a way to, to disciple other churches into orphan care. When he talks about that, he, like he knows what he's talking about because that's, that's what he does. Right. That's what he lives. That's what, that's what the church that he's a part of now does. And and so I hope folks don't miss that, that, um, you know, that, that really one of the great ways that we can help to lead other churches, um, into caring for orphan and vulnerable children is by allowing, allowing other churches to come alongside us mm-hmm. and come alongside our church and learn and, and then, you know, allow, multiplication to happen allow us to to do that we've as a matter of fact man he you know he mentions and and obviously has a huge heart for um 
reconciliation and restoration ministry with families that have have lost their kids into foster care and uh you know i was really thankful that he gave us a plug at lifeline in that and talking about families count um but i can tell you firsthand we've seen growth in our in in the church that i'm in here in birmingham when when we've had other churches that have come alongside us to help and support um the 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 effort that that we're doing in in family reunification and so like that's been it's it's both been a help to us and an incredible blessing to have those people walk alongside us um, it's also been a catalyst to see those ministries begin in other churches and for other churches to begin to you know to to flourish in in doing that and now we have multiple churches in our community that are that are all doing this ministry and we're kind of doing it in community together um, but it's happened because of a willingness both to disciple and a willingness to be discipled yeah absolutely yeah and i and you know as you guys know both well you know just from me saying it in the interview and from rick saying you know we're we're friends with bruce he's a great guy but it goes to what i'm talking about on this show a lot like we have great relationships and we can do amazing work with people that you know we may not agree with everything and you know what the fact of the matter is i may agree with everything that bruce says i haven't really gone down the list of things right you know <laughs> and it may be that he says something i'm like ooh, you know but again like you said to be charitable i'm, I'm actually reading a book right now that talks about that we need to be you know the idea of, of charity right that to give right. the the best interpretation of someone something somebody something somebody says rather than the worst interpretation of it which is what we tend to do with social media you know somebody posts something and then all of a sudden the attacks come and you're like that's not what i meant at all but you can see how somebody can interpret that way if they're going for the worst interpretation but you know it's interesting because the whole Orphan Sunday thing, it reminded me of what, you know, we've, I think we talked about Russell Moore last episode or maybe a couple episodes ago, but uh, the idea of when I interviewed him and we talked about, you know, he wrote a blog on Sanctity of Life Sunday and he says, I hate preaching on Sanctity of Life Sunday right? because we shouldn't have to have a Sanctity of Life Sunday. And that's right. how I feel about Orphan Sunday. It should be part of the DNA of churches. And so I, I, that's what I talk about when I talk about Orphan Sunday with people. I'm like, what if we didn't need Orphan Sunday? You know, like that would be awesome because we're just preaching about it all the time. And we're talking about it. It's just part of the DNA. It's part of the sermons. It just comes up because that's what we're doing and that's what we're about. Like that is what, you know, I, I get. You know what they're trying to do at Watermark, right? The intentional message once a month that you know coming out and talking about it at least intentionally, well, right? So, and man, I'll tell you just from just from practicality, and and I thought this is one of those things that I thought Tony and I wrote in Orphanology. I could have sworn it was in the book, and now I can't. I'm find sure it. it was. It was great. Um, it was great. But but you know something that we found along the way when uh, when we were together in the church that we were in when we wrote the book is exactly what he said about about what uh, the com the conversation he had with Todd that um, like it 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 wasn't as effective to have a Sunday where you sell out and you know and, and kind of talk about this stuff in under the microscope what was effective was was what we called the the drip method mm -hmm. and and it was just the idea that regularly we were dripping things out in illustrations and in you know points of action and things in sermons and just being really intentional about the fact that we were we were applying the the implications of scripture to um, the orphan and the widow and the stranger and the the vulnerable people in our community and that we weren't reserving uh, the application only for 
uh, people like us or, or people who were there to, you know, to hear the message. And, and we were talking about how we could extend those, impl- those implications and applications to, um, you know, to the vulnerable peoples of our community. And I, I love that. And I know that's true of, you know, of, of, of the DNA and who they are at Watermark. Um, but like, if, if you don't take anything else away from this interview, take that nugget away. If, if you're a pastor or someone who's, you know, who's responsible for teaching the word that, that the effective thing that you can do is to continue to, to go back and hammer the nail of obedience and, and give people tangible examples of, of how they can do it well. Yeah, absolutely. What, what do you think about when he talked about, uh, don't say that not everyone is called to foster or adopt. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, like again, half-heartedly, like I understand exactly what he's trying to say, mm-hmm. <laughs> but the truth is everyone's not called to foster. And <laughs> right, <adopt>. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, and you and I've talked about that before yeah. on, you know, on he, on this podcast. And, and, and I, I think I'm very comfortable saying that there are people out there that are, that are not called to yeah. foster. They're not called to adopt and they shouldn't. Um, and, and, and so I, like, I don't want to draw arbitrary distinctions where people, you know, get this idea that you're somehow a, a second class citizen in the kingdom. If you're not called into this class of people to, to foster or to adopt. And I certainly, you know, would want for people to, to wrestle with the idea of, you know, of, of, is this for me? because there are certainly people mm-hmm. God's called and has done very well in their lives when they didn't initially see it themselves and, and had to wrestle with a calling to, to foster or to adopt. But, um, but I want to acknowledge that, that there are so many more things that we can do and so many more necessary things that are, you know, that are to be, to be done within kingdom work that I, I want to be really careful about how we, um, you know, just how we meter that out. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I get, I totally get what he's saying. Again, with all these things that he's saying, they're very, you know, strong statements. I totally get it because, you know, we're sitting here and we're going like, people do check out when you say that, like, all right, sweet. I'm not, I don't have to do anything then. But that's where the conversation, you know, maybe it starts with, look, everyone is called to do something. Yeah. You know, and then you talk about all those things and you say, look, you know, some people are called to foster and adopt. And maybe that's the way to frame it. And so in the sense of rather than saying not everyone is called to foster and adopt and lead with that to have that be, you know, what we talk about at the end, because it is very important to state that, you know, um, and to be very clear about it, because I think some people you don't want people going into it because they're feeling guilty. And I talk about that in In Pursuit. And I know you talk you've talked about it, whether it's in orphanology. I'm sure it's in orphanology because that's like the preeminent book on everything you know that you could ever know want to know about orphanology so um it's got to be in there somewhere Um, absolutely because we made up a word yeah and i've 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 read that like every three or four months since i've started this work you know since you well since you wrote it anyway you know it's because like i have to right because you just got to stay up to speed (laughs) right so anyway i haven't done that folks that was a joke Sometimes jokes right. don't translate well over the air. So I just thought I'd make sure you know that. I love people Rick. Are, people, there's somebody out there who just went, Phil's not very spiritual. He's reading orphanology. For right. Well, here's the deal. I read it before I knew you. So it was like way, way more influential wow. on me then. So, <laughs> so not even close. Hey, it's so, like I tell people when I sign the book, it makes the value go down. Exactly. You can't sell it on Amazon so, anymore, but that's okay. There you go. Um, okay. So... 
Last one, last little thing before we uh, get to the recommendation, which I know everyone's waiting yeah. around for. Um, so something that I know we both love, you know, is just the idea of them strengthening families really at Watermark yeah. and, and yeah. having the classes um, for the biological parents who are working to get their children back, right? You know, like we're going to provide this so that you yeah. can get your kid back. You know, I, just, I think I already know what you're going to say, but, you know, what, what, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Well, I mean, obviously I'm a huge fan. Um, and Bruce mentioned in, you know, in the interview, uh, Families Count, which is a, mm-hmm. a program that, uh, that we started at Lifeline now uh, a little over four years ago uh, and have seen churches, you know, mobilized into, into that work. And, and, and essentially it's um, helping the church to engage these families by teaching the court-mandated family education that they that, that they have to do as part of their case plan. Um, and, and we've seen it extend to families that are at risk and, and we've seen, uh, you know, county officials and judges use this and, and basically say, um, you know, you can go to this church as a, uh, as an option, um, as a diversionary, uh, you know, a diversionary outlet. And, and we've seen, you know, we've seen God do some amazing things. I think, you know what I what I would say from a statistical point of view because I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty jazzed about this because we we just recently um, got some research back from one of the counties that we're working in in Alabama um, and and what we found over a three year period of the families in this county that had had gone through um, a a church led program and it's a biblically based gospel centered family curriculum um, that satisfies all of the requirements for. Uh, for their training by the state that um, that that we saw over a three year period uh, a less than eight uh, percent recidivism rate on the part of those families mm. and if you're if you're working in the foster care area you like you know that's a miracle mm-hmm. um, conventional statistics right now would tell us across the country that that between thirty and forty percent of the kids who actually go back home out of foster care end up coming back in the system. And there's a, there's about a 30 to 40% recidivism rate. And, and, and so we're saying that, that when the church is involved, that there's a, a two to 300% decrease in, in the, in the number of kids that are coming back into the system, according to this, uh, according to this research study. And, wow. and, and what that says is, is that, that the church is an effective agent of reconciliation. Now we know second Corinthians five already says that, right? Like mm-hmm. we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Um, but this is proof positive. And I, I love the fact that, you know, that, that Bruce and, and Watermark are, are diving into that in Dallas County and, and engaging that meaningfully. Um, and, and, you know, we've seen it. I've, I'm, I'm in a church where we've been doing this now for almost three years in Birmingham ham and and we've seen the fruit of it in in our own neighborhood and in our own church and so i would encourage the folks that are out there listening um that that this is a space where the church really can step in and this is a place where really literally every adult in the church um can can have a meaningful role in in being able to to carry out this ministry because a big part of what makes it work is is biblical hospitality it's people serving meals and providing transportation and and people doing childcare and people you know mentoring and um, and 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 doing one on one discipleship in addition to the classes. Yeah, right. Any last thoughts before Doctor Rick and Phil recommend 
And you, you got folks out there can probably guess who's going to recommend based on the last few weeks. But anyway, absolutely. Anyway, well, you got I don't want to break else? your streak. You got anything? No, else? man. I'm. I, I think. Uh, I just. You know. I. I'm just excited that uh, that that you know for this interview with Bruce and for folks to be able to hear that. And I hope they were challenged and. Mm-hmm. Um. You know. And and that's it, man. Yeah. You know, I feel like we need to get a jingle or something for the recommendations. It, it feels like, you know, we're lacking that right now. You got any, you got any thoughts for a jingle that we could throw in that you could just do? I don't you know. You know, like, remember like I, Wayne's World, you know, like, you know, or like something like that, but better. Right. So anyway, we're not going to have it yet, but I just thought, you know, we got to be thinking about that. Maybe, maybe Paul could, could hook us up with something, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll just go forgo it again this week because we, we haven't 130 episodes or so we haven't done it yet. Maybe we shouldn't, but anyway, just a thought folks pipe in on that. If you're still listening, you're one of the faithful. So, you know, you really can give us some good advice on the jingle, but anyway, the recommendations are much better than that little aside. Two that I've already recommended, but I'm going to recommend them again because of the content of the show. I actually had a different recommendation today that I probably will do next week, um, but I changed it midstream today because these two uh, books, if you have not read them yet, you need to. If you're listening to this podcast, especially as we're talking about things that you can be doing. Um, I actually said the title of one of them earlier in this episode. It's Everybody Can Do Something by Jason Johnson. We had him on recently. Fantastic book talking about how churches can get involved. He talks about the drip method in there, in fact, as you talked about, Rick. And uh, just just awesome. Just such a good book. And then the other is by uh, another one of our friends, uh, Rick, uh, Johnny Carr's book, Orphan Justice. One of the best books yep. ever written on orphan care. And folks, if you haven't read it and you're, again, you're listening to this, you have, pick it up just right now. Stop listening. Go to Amazon. Pick it up and read it. Uh, listen to it. I don't know if it's got an audio version, but if it does, whatever. I'd, I'd, I'd recommend the hard copy on this one because you can actually have so much to reference and share with others too. So with all that, folks, take everything that you learned today. Um, just use it to help you understand how you can love orphan and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan. Think Orphan.